We are starting, though, talking about more vandalism. Again, one particular neighbourhood in Vancouver that keeps getting hit. And Lorraine Lowe joins us once again, Executive Director of the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden. Lorraine, thank you so much for being with us again. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me again. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And I think every time we we chat now, and I'm always so happy that you agree to come on the show, but I wish once it would just be about something fun and something uh, far lighter than what we're talking about. But unfortunately, once again, your neighborhood, your community is dealing with vandalism. What has happened now? Uh, Yes, I mean, we've been getting hit uh, quite a bit just most recently the last couple of weeks, um, especially leading up to the Chinese New Year. Uh, just recently, we had somebody with a fire extinguisher um, spray the side of the Kiefer building. So they're still working on that. It, it's, it's an eyesore right now. We, the garden, have been repeatedly getting these hateful anti-Chinese anti-establishment, anti-VPD, ABC uh, messages on our walls. And our community board, as you probably are well aware of, um, just keeps getting hit with this anti-Chinese sentiment. And you mentioned the the Chinese New Year and and Lunar New Year. Is it tied, do you think, is it somebody that that is is doing it specifically because that celebration is underway? Well, I mean, we were discussing about it just amongst our community members. And yes, we do feel that it was deliberate and it was targeted because this is all leading up to the parade, uh, to the celebration. So uh, this past one here, that was actually discovered just yesterday morning. So there's been some um, uh, there's been something happening just leading up to and then immediately after. And when you talk about things like that, the side of the Kiefer building and then the the graffiti and the, the very kind of vulgar uh, words that have been spray painted on the, the memorial statue, uh, we'll talk about kind of the, the emotional toll, but that's got to be a financial toll as well. You know, it, it's not a victimless crime. And, you know, this is this is a perfect opportunity. Let's just say if the offender is caught it would be a really good opportunity to to use the restorative justice model. Like, this is not a victimless crime. Um, you know, they, they it would be really nice if they could come help clean the building, meet the business owners, and get to know, like, what kind of damage this creates. Like, it's a domino effect. And when when you arrive to work or when people come to the neighborhood, maybe they're coming home or they're, they're go- coming to and from home or, or for whatever reason they are in the Chinatown area, what, what is it like? What does it do to, to kind of, again, the, the emotional toll seeing this over and over again? Well, I, it's it's discouraging, and it's not a good it's not good for tourism. So when you come into Chinatown, you know we want to see vibrancy. We want to see what it used to be like, what that that vibrancy that was once here. And when we get this, you know, repeated vandalism, broken windows, uh, it, it's not good, and it just keeps building. And this isn't good for for our community, nor is it good for the business owners. And in order for us to really, like, get through this this post-COVID, we need that economic vibrancy. That's super important to our community right now. The next few years are going to be crucial. Mm, Yeah, and and Lorraine, we've talked about this as well in the city, uh, bringing forward the the grant to help revitalize that neighborhood. uh, I think it was around $700,000, specifically to address things like vandalism, 
property crime and what's happening in Chinatown. Uh, I know that that was just approved, but but what are your thoughts on the fact that that was approved and now we're still seeing this uh, this type of destruction? Uh, Well, the sort of stuff that's going to take a long time uh, for us to even see any results. Um, You know, the good news is that we are headed in the right direction. We have a very supportive council. Uh, Staff came back with an action plan to address all the concerns. They're going to start with the first pillar, which is focused on the sanitation uh, and, you know, graffiti removal and just the cleanliness, just to kind of restore that that public perception of Chinatown. We are not a dangerous place. Please come down and visit us and support the community. It also is not not that any of it makes sense or you can justify any of it, but looking at this latest graffiti that, again, the, the spray paint on the memorial statue, and not that any of it makes sense, but this, it doesn't make any sense. I don't even know. I can't repeat it on, on radio, uh, but it makes reference to what well, there's a swear word. It makes reference uh, to the KKK. I have no idea w- what this person is trying to gain or even what kind of message this person is trying to put out there. Yeah, I, I'm unfortunately, I have no idea as well. There has been some discussions amongst um, of my colleagues. We really don't understand what that message is, whether or not it's related to the same uh, vandalism that's occurring at the garden. We don't know that. The police are investigating. But, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's very disheartening to see this type of attitude towards our country. You know, it's just our value system needs to be restored. And it's quite sad, actually. Somebody had commented, you know, that someone's child writing that on the wall. And, you know, we have to kind of like go back and take a few steps back and figure out, okay, what's going on, right? Is it, you know, the family? Is it the upbringing? That sort of thing. Because in our culture, we're very law-abiding. Um, and it, we, I, I can speak for myself. My parents were very strict with me. So, you know, I would not be uh, getting away with stuff like this. No. And and uh, Lorraine, what are your thoughts, too, on I know there's been increased lighting and uh, security cameras like in every neighborhood. Now there are t- there are a lot of security cameras on buildings and on corners uh, of, of the kind of how difficult it is to catch people who are doing this. It is difficult. Um, unfortunately, you know, the camera situation, we don't have that many cameras in Chinatown. I know that there was um, a motion that was uh, what was put forth. Uh, that was struck down. Uh, the lighting that's on its way, there's some lighting that's being installed right now on uh, Pender. It looks gorgeous at night. I mean, it would be really nice to have the whole entire Chinatown lit up like that. But yes, it is a problem. Um, I, I just think that if we do have cameras and we do catch the people that there needs to be some sort of um, measures to kind of like uh, ensure that people don't want to do this again. Right. Is there a reluctance for cameras? I know we've, we've talked about the, the police camera, their mobile camera, and there, there, wasn't, there didn't seem to be an appetite for that to be set up in the neighbourhood. Is there a reluctance to install more cameras? Well, not based on our community, but there were people that were against it. You know, there was privacy issues. And I think uh, that just needs to be sorted out. But, you know, I went to our trip down in San Francisco. They have cameras installed. And I I tell you, the place looks amazing because, you know, they put all these measures in place. But again, baby steps and we're getting there.
All right. And Lorraine, before I let you go, because it is, you mentioned uh, the New Year celebrations and uh, the parade coming and all of that. How are things going as far as the celebrations and people getting back to, I think, in, in many cases, being much more comfortable gathering in crowds and gathering together? How are things going for this year's Lunar New Year? Well, thank you so much for, for bringing that up, Jill. We just had our spring festival parade. We had over 100,000 people come down. The garden had over 700 people one day and I think 1,000 plus on the other day on Sunday. So, you know, we're open for business, like uh, Mayor Ken Sim said in his address at the Board of Trade um, the other day. So uh, please come on down. And, um, yeah, there's been a very uh, positive, uplifting vibe to Chinatown, um, and especially this year, the rabbit. All right. Can you tell us a bit, uh, and I know, sorry, if, if you don't have it at the, the top of your mind, but just because you did mention Year of the Rabbit, I'm always intrigued by that. And, and what, what kind of things is that expected to bring or what is special about Year of the Rabbit? So I am the, actually born in the Year of the Rabbit, the Wood Rabbit. And, you know, it, it's great because I think it, we are peacekeeping, it's longevity. Um, so we're going to hopefully see a lot of that uh, going into 2023, that there's going to be a lot of diplomacy. There, we're calm, we're gentle people. So uh, make sure, hoping that that's going to bring some sort of balance um, in 2023. All right. That sounds wonderful. Uh, certainly sounds like in the right direction. Lorraine, we will leave it there for today. Thank you, as always, for coming on the show. Great. Thank you, Jill. Well, a new study that has been released from the UBC Souter School of Business shows a bit of a disconnect when looking at the most expensive homes in the city of Vancouver and then looking at the amount of income tax paid by those who are living in those homes. Let's find out more about this and taking a look at the findings is Tom Davidoff, who's the UBC Souter Associate Professor. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were looking at specifically then when it comes to the, the most expensive homes in Vancouver and connecting that to the amount of income tax people are paying? Yeah. So Statistics Canada in recent years has put together something called the Canadian Housing Statistics Program, which links uh, administrative tax data to home ownership data. So we can see, not at an individual level, that that's handled uh, for confidentiality reasons, but at an aggregate level, we can see the relationship between the value uh, of homes that people own uh, and the income tax paid by the owner. And, you know, in most metropolitan areas, that's a very strong relationship. The richest people own the most expensive homes, and we have progressive taxes in the U.S. and Canada. So the people who own the most expensive homes, being the richest people, pay the most income tax. Now, you know, when you think about Vancouver, we think about this, uh, you know, Toronto might be uh, a nice place to make money. You might think of Vancouver as a nice place to have money. And so for a variety of reasons, one is sort of suspicious that that relationship between tax paid and property value holds up here. And sure enough, it's much weaker. So, for example, uh, the people who own the 5% of homes that are the most expensive with the typical value of about $3.8 million as of 2018, the middle of that distribution of owners paid only $15,800 in income tax. Now, that's not nothing, uh, but, you know, you'd be looking at hundreds of thousands in income tax if you tried to buy a $3.8 million house based on, you know, working for a living. 
Right. Okay. So, and did it break it down then the numbers or or figure out why uh, somebody who has say a three point eight million dollar house why they there's no record of them paying uh, income tax that would match that like you say match a salary that would be needed for that. Right. So, sort of the two obvious suspects are number one. Well, you know, prices have risen a lot in Vancouver, so maybe you've got a lot of senior citizens who bought their houses years and years ago, never earned a great deal of money, but their their property values just exploded. Well, that doesn't work as an explanation because we see that same pattern of no greatly strong relationship between property value and income tax when you limit the analysis to people of working age between, say, 25 and 65. So it isn't senior citizens. Answer number two, of course, uh, a lot of people would point to foreign buyers. Uh, but if you limit the sample to people who are Canadian permanent residents or citizens, once again, uh, you find that weak relationship. Now, this could be immigrants who brought money in from overseas, uh, but they're permanent residents for the most part. It's not non-Canadians. Uh, could it be uh, people in a scenario where for uh, protection purposes, say if it's a, a business owner, it's a couple, that the house is in the name of one person who maybe doesn't have uh, a full-time job, doesn't have a big salary, and therefore the tax would be low, whereas really the other person in the house is making a big salary? You know, that's a good question, and, and there's a couple of ways around that. The first is that some properties are just owned by corporations. So we've only looked at properties owned by non-corporate individuals uh, for, for some of the analysis. And so, it, you know, getting rid of the corporations doesn't matter. I do think part of the issue is that some of the richest people uh, in British Columbia make their money, as you suggest, through corporations and only pull out money infrequently, say, to buy a house or, you know, maybe pull out 100 grand a year for a moderate level of expenses. But they're, they're getting rich off the corporation. So, you know, that, that could be part of it. And and so, what is the concern though that the income tax payments, the, the the amount of income tax someone pays, that it that it doesn't match the value of their home? Why why should we be concerned about that? Yeah, sure. So taxes in general, you know, most people don't like paying them, uh, but they do buy us a government. And so then the question is, who should pay taxes? And you know, I think most of us believe the people with the greatest ability to pay ought to be those who pay the most. And so now what does ability to pay mean? Does it mean you're rich or does it mean you made a lot of money this year? Well, you know, your lifetime earnings ought to be a pretty good picture of your ability to pay. And we would generally think the value of your home is pretty proportional to how much money you've made over your career. Uh, And so we would generally think people who have really expensive homes have a lot of ability to pay. They had a lot of ability to pay for a home. And so you should see a strong relationship between your wealth and and, and, and income tax payments. But we just don't find that here. So I think people who think we should have a fair tax code should find this disturbing, but also an efficient tax code. Because, you know, working for a living, which is very heavily taxed in British Columbia, especially at the higher end, you know, if you tax it too much, people will work less. People are going to still buy homes in British Columbia, whether they're taxed or not. So as a matter of economic efficiency, making sure that the people who own the most expensive homes pay tax, well, that could lower taxes elsewhere in the economy where you might buy some more productivity. Right. Okay. But in the cases of the expensive homes, and again, if we use that figure of $3.8 million, isn't somebody that no matter what your income is or what you're paying in income tax, if we're talking about progressive taxes, aren't they paying a lot in property tax? 
it depends what you call a lot, not relative to the income tax you have to pay, right? So you're looking at almost a million dollar income if you want to buy a $4 million property, and you're into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. On the other hand, your property tax would be something like, you know, 12,000 bucks plus a little bit of the, uh, you know, um, sort of what is the additional school tax, maybe it'd be at another 10 or something like that. So you're looking at twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 tops. Uh, and again, you know, in an income tax bill, that would be, a, you know, just a, 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 far, a far greater magnitude. Uh, the study uh, is suggesting something that I'm guessing is not going to be all that popular with homeowners, mm-hmm. but it is actually suggesting something uh, that would be a low, a minimum income tax. What is the suggestion here? Yeah, I actually think it might be pretty popular. You know, this was really the idea that I think spawned the uh, speculation and vacancy tax. You know, but the problem with the speculation and vacancy tax is you're in or you're out. As long as you're a full-time resident of the home, whether you're paying any income tax or not, you don't have to pay the the empty homes tax. Our idea is, look, you got to pay 1% of property value. And anybody who works for a living and owns a property uh, already does that, right? If you own a million-dollar house, that would just say you have to pay 10,000 bucks a year in income tax. We'd exempt retirees, people you know above, say, age 65. So, you know, anybody who works for a living owns a million or $2 million house. They're paying well over uh, 1% of property value, almost certainly. On the other hand, if you own a $4 million house and you're paying nothing in income tax, well, then you'd owe 40 k a year, which, you know, would be a reasonable contribution based on your ability to pay. And, and so that would be, though, only if you fall into the category of you're not paying that amount of income tax. It wouldn't be ac- across the board, not uh, not no, factoring no, no, in no, your no. income tax. Yeah, you know, you make 200 k a year, you own a million-dollar house, you're going to be way exempt already because you pay more than 1% of your property value. This would just guarantee that nobody gets away with being rich enough to own a $4 million house. Uh, but, but, but not paying really much of anything into our tax base. And, you know, we calculate that could earn billions of dollars a year for the province just from the top 10% of homes, and that's where most of the revenue would be. But, you know, $2 billion bucks that every year, that could buy you a lot of uh, assistance to homelessness. It could get that promised uh, renter's rebate. You could lower income taxes, sales tax, lots you could do with that money, of course. And I know you said that there was no evidence that showed this group was a big part of this. But what about there will be some people that purchased their home decades ago, um, maybe somebody who's living on a fixed income who doesn't have a big income right now. So how would they be impacted by this? I think that's a very important question for implementing this tax, both politically, because that's that's a lot of people who vote and just as a matter of sympathy. So I think there's two things you can do. One, as I said, you could exempt retirees, people above working age. The other thing you could do is make the tax based on uh, what you bought the property for, uh, not what its current mark-to-market value is. And, you know, one thing we looked at is, well, you know, maybe this phenomenon doesn't exist among recent buyers. But if you look at people who bought their home between 2013 and 2018, those homes were not uh, bought based on income. You have the weakest relationship between property value and income among recent buyers. So you'd still raise plenty of revenue if you exempted longtime owners. All right. It's uh, an interesting uh, idea, definitely. Uh, Have you been getting much reaction to it, or is it still pretty fresh out there? Uh, Yeah, no, I'm really happy to be on on your program, and I I think people are mostly supportive. You know, I had an interesting debate 
uh, with, uh, you know, with Andre Pavlov and his, 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 his uh, colleague, Paul, and I apologize, I'm missing his last name for a moment, Paul the, uh, Sullivan, Paul Sullivan, mm-hmm. the tax, uh, you know, a, a property tax expert. And, you know, he was thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about raising property taxes for everybody. And that's just a non-starter. There's a lot of people who, who believe they pay plenty of property taxes as it is. But, you know, people who own fancy homes and uh, don't pay income tax, I, I don't think there's a ton of sympathy for the position that, that that ought to be a phenomenon. And again, it doesn't really happen much outside of greater Vancouver. You see a much stronger relationship between tax paid and property value in Toronto and throughout the U.S. All right. So, Tom Davidoff, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about the study and these findings today. Thank you so much. All right. I saw a story and it was all about people choosing a fridge free lifestyle. And I was reading this story and it went into detail as to why some people are making this choice and doing it for the environment and that it's actually becoming a thing. More and more people are deciding to ditch the fridge. And that left me with a lot of questions. What that would be like? Would it really make a difference? And then I saw this story and it featured Josh Spodek, who is a host of the award-winning This Sustainable Life podcast. He's also a four-time TEDx speaker, a best-selling author as well. And yes, you guessed it, somebody who has stopped using a fridge. Well, Josh Spodek joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. Uh, This is a a movement, I guess, or it seems like this is becoming uh, more popular. When and why did you get rid of your refrigerator? Well, I still have it. I just unplugged it. And uh, I actually opened it a little while ago. And I I confess there's a little mold in it because I haven't opened it in so long. (laughs) But uh, there's a a long story. Ten years ago, I challenged myself. I looked at how much garbage I produced, and I challenged myself to go for a week without buying any packaged food, with no anticipation. Actually, I live in New York, and I thought I'm going to be giving up the best food in the world, and I'm not good. Of, I'm not that good a cook, but I ended up learning how to cook, you know, more than just like heating up some pasta, and that led me to find that it was actually cheaper and more convenient and tasted better when I cooked my own after I learned. And that had this mindset shift that I started thinking, what else could I do? And I read this article just by chance. This is, there was no intent. You know, you're talking about a movement, and I, I didn't know anything about anything. <laughs> I just read this article, and it said that a lot of the world doesn't refrigerate. It was, it was about Vietnam. And it said that they have different food systems, and so the food delivery is like, it's all much more local. And at the time, I thought, well, my fridge is my, most, my greatest source of pollution here. And I'd learned from these other experiments I did before that if I analyze and plan too much, it just delays. So before I could stop myself, I walked over and unplugged the fridge. And that's as far, I did not think past that. I was, it was just figuring I'd probably have to plug it in a day or two later. And I made it three months with no, like, you know, I had, a, I had something like a day to eat the stuff that was in the fridge at that moment. And then I just had to figure things out. And that's been a process, of, a really joyful process. People describe me as extreme, but really I feel more traditional because much of the world doesn't have refrigerators and, and no one had a refrigerator more than something like 100 years ago. And I'm connecting with family and, and 
learning about indigenous cultures and not just by going there, but like, how does it work? Hmm. And so how did it change? So did you also then, when you unplugged the refrigerator, did you also stick with your no packaged foods rule as well? Yeah, the original goal was a week with zero. And then since then, it's been pretty minimal. So not absolute zero, but it takes me actually, it's for most people to seem pretty close because I'm in my fourth year on this one load of garbage still. So it's pretty low compared to most, but I still feel like any plastic is going to be around for a long time. So I try to avoid it. And yeah, actually not using the fridge has led me to find, I keep finding these opposites. I thought, you know, if, if I make a casserole and I, would, I don't want it to go bad, I would, I used to think put it in the fridge, but that's one use. But systemically, if I have the fridge, I get stuff that can be refrigerated. If I, Instead, I have to get mostly fresh fruits and vegetables, which stay, you know, tomato I can keep on the counter for a while and squashes for months and cabbages for months. Lettuce, this is crazy. If I put lettuce in water, it actually grows. (laughs) So I have more the longer I let it sit. Uh, And is there anything, though, that you had to give up because it just didn't work as far as you needed to refrigerate it? The answer to your question is yes. But when I, it doesn't feel that way anymore because what I've given up, what at the time felt like giving up, I now, it's, it's, everything's been replaced with fresh fruits and vegetables and, and grains from the, from the bulk section. And so I, I don't feel like I've given anything up. I feel actually like I live close to a farmer's market. And a big part of what I do is to create more demand for farmer's markets so that they grow because there's lots of places without access. And I think the, the worst way to increase access is to not shop there. And here's a secret. uh, You guys aren't close to New York. So (laughs) if I get to know the vendors, they give me free vegetables. Ah. It's not more expensive. And the, I, when I go to the farmer's market and also I have this, I don't know if you know, I have a CSA, which is um, every week of there's a particular farm that delivers these vegetables to a drop-off point. And I, I and all the other people who are subscribed, we go and pick it up. So I get, a bigger variety than I used to get. And the joy, one of the joys of the CSA is I don't know what I'm going to get until I get there. So I get there and sometimes there's something, I don't know what it is. Like, uh, you know, the first time I got maybe a kohlrabi, I didn't grow up eating them. So I'm like, what do I do with this? And I have to figure it out. And so I don't feel a sense of loss. I feel instead of like, wait a minute, people have been eating food locally here for like 10,000 years. And that's how cuisine happens is it's like here's the food make it good and then i gotta figure it out and at first I, I gotta be honest there was a good six months of very bland food of just i would just steam everything and but i didn't like that you know i wanted to make it interesting so then it was really discovering and playing around and you know some things didn't work out but some things did you mentioned the casserole though so what do you do if you have leftovers there's winter and there's summer. So when I first did it, it happened to be December. And my windowsill is cooler than the rest of the apartment. So I put stuff on the windowsill. So that first time I made three months, it was December, January, February. And I, it was just like using the fridge. I just put stuff on the counter. But since that article was about Vietnam, which is hot and humid, I knew I could make it later. So the next year I started a little earlier in November and made it six and a half months to you know, spring. 
and I started fermenting and figuring out how to um, pickling and things like that, which I'd never grown up doing. I, I, none of what I do now did I know how to do before. It was really just, I'm a kid playing with Lego. I'm just, how does this stuff fit together? Is it interesting? And so do you ever see a time when you might go back or, or even say missing having a freezer or are you, you happy with this and this is a, a change you've made that will be a permanent change? I wish I thought this far ahead. I, <laughs> I, it's re- I'm pretty sure I'm not going to plug it back in on my own. When I visit friends, you know, I'm fine to eat out of their fridges if they serve me something. But there's, you know, a lot of people, when they look at the, our environmental issues, and it's not just climate because there's plastic and there's, you know, um, depleting aquifers and all these things. And I don't, now I'm not getting stuff that was shipped from California. So when I, when I felt helpless, I didn't want to do anything. I, if I really look back, the first time that I tried to avoid packaged food, I think I secretly wanted to fail so that I could just give up. And say, well, what can I, I tried too hard. It doesn't work. But instead I found that it was joyful and frankly delicious and saved money and time. After I'd learned to cook, it, it, there was that bland period that didn't go so well. <laughs> right. But what, you know, it's like kind of going through withdrawal. And I don't want to speak too lightly about something. But it was now I, I feel more connected than ever with the people on the receiving end of the pollution people who are suffering around the world because when I felt powerless, I felt disengaged. Now I feel powerful and engaged. And and by the way, I'm not pretending that my actions divided by 8 billion round off to anything much, but I also consult with leaders of big, big, very polluting organizations, executives. And what I learned, I mean, I think the most important thing we can do is to lead change culture. And this enables that. I think it's very, I think it's impossible to lead someone else to live by values that I would live the opposite of. So this is, for my work with executives, this is absolutely essential to live by my values, to, to lead with integrity. Well, it is a very interesting, uh, interesting uh, way of doing things. And uh, I'm so glad that you were able to talk with us today because I was very curious about living without a refrigerator. Josh, we'll leave it there. But thank you again so much for making time for us today. Thank you. If you come by New York, come by for some of my stew.